Hey, this is Stephanie. And this is Tony. And we just wrapped up a podcast with Randy George. Uh, He was talking about his new book, Memoir of a Skipjack. You know, one of the things that, as as an outsider, I forget how into skipjacks and crab cakes and things that people are, but they really, really totally are. And it's serious business. And when I was talking to him, I got more into it. He had, he had like an infectious way of talking about, it. he was really, really happy to be involved in this project. Yeah. So the way Randy came to the project was, uh, he and his brother-in-law, uh, were looking at potentially buying a skipjack and saving one. And they came across a skipjack that actually his brother-in-law had, restored and that kind of sparked the bug of like hey we should you know maybe we should go save one and then in that process they found five candidates and of that there was a skipjack named martha lewis and that was the one that randy george and uh decided that that was the one he was going to save and fix up and what was cool about the way he did it was he didn't set out to write a book he set out to do a thing and then halfway through he's like oh and also let me write a book about this because there's so much information. He was just documenting what he was doing. And the reason I thought that was important is we've been talking a lot about how we document as we go as writers. And um, I guess as non-writers too, we document as we go and that's how we become writers. I guess that's how your writer's soul comes out. I guess it is. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're talking about a skipjack, you know, you're talking about the physical preservation of the boat and the historical and the, and the family and the culture and language and you know there was so much that i think i can i can see exactly where randy was like yeah this has to be more than just notes in my filing cabinet it's absolutely a super cool story um so take a listen to that i guess you've already started so hopefully you will finish um in other news uh plug time so if you're listening already then you can just click over to itunes and give us a review because we could really use them we've gotten two so far yeah we actually have five five star reviews and one came in from uh cindy cavett yeah and she gave us a great review. Thanks, Cindy. Yeah, thank you very much. We should probably read that on the, the one of the next podcasts. So starting starting with the next podcast, we will read at least one great review each time, and that way we can give you the shout out for giving us a shout out. We really appreciate it. Um, we had we had our numbers come out, and in case you don't know, you are one of about fifteen thousand people who has downloaded this podcast to listen to, which in a small area. And as nasally as my voice can be, is, is and a as Kermit miracle. the Froggy. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually made a note in my in my question notes. I look at you when you're talking sometimes, and you don't sound like Stephanie. You sound like that lady on the radio, which is pretty cool. You know, I never really thought of it. I'm so terrified of the sound of my own voice <laughs> that I can't even bear to hear it on the radio. So, but anyway, apparently you guys can. So thanks. Keep up the good work, and please continue with the great reviews. And uh, here's Randy George. The story has been told continuously since the time that I became involved with it. When we first brought it up the bay from Tillman Island up to Haverty Grace, we were on the boat for the first time, and it seemed like a charging bull. It was a strong, powerful creature, and it took on that kind of importance right away. It was not something that was casual in any way. It was physically important. And then as we began to reconstruct it, we found so much about the the structure of the boat, the thinking that had to go into it, that I had to write all of that down too. And a sizable portion of this book is the is the documentation of how a skipjack is made. It's the most uh, I'm fairly certain of this. The most detailed uh, description of skipjack uh, structure that seemed to be important as well. It's a it's a, a tradition. Uh, if it was not going to die, then one had to had to describe it. 
Hi, this is Stephanie Fallon. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Randolph George, who has just published his first book, Memoir of a Skipjack. In 1993, Randy found the aging Martha Lewis and decided to save her. He documents that experience as well as the interesting history of the boat and offers readers both a technical and pictorial view of what it means to save a skipjack. So welcome to the podcast, Randy. Well, thank you. Well, I'm delighted to have you here because this was a project that uh, actually you and I have worked on for the past couple of months. We did. And uh, it was really kind of near and dear to my heart. I'm a huge lover of the Chesapeake and, you know, born and raised Eastern Shore girl. And um, so to work on a book about an iconic skipjack was, I mean, that was sort of like meat and potatoes for me. Could you tell us a little bit about how you found the Martha Lewis? Well, I was actually looking for, not specifically, Specifically, Martha. Well, we call her Martha uh, for short. But when I first started to fall in love with the Chesapeake Bay, which has been, well, 40 years ago now, I became aware of a tradition, of a heritage that was fading. And uh, I became more and more aware of it as I started uh, dealing with my uh, brother-in-law, Alan Rawl, who was a shipbuilder. He built full-size ships, quite large reproductions of uh, immigrant ships. He and I were talking about the bay, the boats, and it so happens that he had built a skipjack. He was working on a crew that did it. It was a reconstruction of one that was in bad shape. And then they made a replica of that same boat. In our conversations, we thought about, why don't we save one? And went down to a place in in the southern part of the peninsula, Crisfield, and just looked at a boat that we heard was down there. It was behind the uh, Maritime Museum, and it was in horrible shape. It was a dying. And Alan became aware not too soon afterwards that it was the boat that he had built. That's Get cool. out. <laughs> <laughs> and it was crumbling. The mast was broken. The uh, planks uh, were rotten. And uh, it really made it uh, poignant to, to both of us that this was something going away too fast. In our conversations, we decided to find a boat that wasn't too far gone that we could bring back. And um, I really think we did it. When we looked around, and Alan did most of the searching, there were five for sale, five skipjacks for sale at the time. And some of them were too far gone. Some were wildly expensive. People had strange ideas about what they were what <laughs> they were worth. But one was affordable and seemed salvageable. And so we picked her, and um, she was Martha. She now, was Martha. Your brother-in-law, when did he stop making skipjacks? Is there still, are people still he building was, them today? They, they are not really building them very much today. He was not a skipjack builder. He's a, he was a boat builder, mm. but um, just happened to be involved in this one boat. Now, did you have any luck finding the replica? Do you know where the replica is? Uh, they find the Martha Lewis, and you know, in the process of looking for a skipjack to save, mm. there's a couple of different ones, and then they they basically say that, hey, the Martha Lewis, as they we call it, Martha, this is the one we're going to save, and this is the one that we're going to, you know, put sink our our hearts and minds into, and then. How did you come to digging the research? Like once you get this historic boat, and then it's like, what do I do with it now? 
take it to some place where we could begin work on it. And after a lot of um, a letter writing and phone calls, we found a place in Haverty Grace. And so we had a home for the boat. Well, as soon as we moved her up the bay, I set out to find out about it, where she came from, what was her prior life. And uh, in the process, met a whole lot of water people, a right. lot of their families, and uh, learned in their own words what it was like to depend on Martha Lewis for a living. How far into the process did you know you were writing a book? Was this part of a book project or? I don't think it was clearly a book project for a very long time. I wanted to record the voices, to talk to the people, to photograph them in a documentary way, but I didn't have a clear idea about how that would work out. I didn't really have a definite book in mind. That came later, and it came later as I've grown older. It seemed impossible to let this this rich heritage and the one that I had discovered to let it go, to let right. it to let it disappear. Um, that would have been wrong. And so, out of a sense of duty to history, I just sat down and started writing. And it took it took literally years to get it as right as I could. Well, we talk about that. We've talked about this on on several shows. This notion of when you have these experiences that you know need to be preserved, and then they also need to be shared. Like knowing it. For for writers specifically, knowing it has no satisfaction. Telling it is where is where the satisfaction comes yes. in. That's where the as you say, the duty to to the the story's too good to keep to yourself. I think that way. The maritime history of the region that we live in along the Chesapeake Bay is really rich. This was one of the first places where uh European people came, where they first settled. And in the process they had to eat and they had to make a living. Because there was water all around and land, they became farmers or water people. In order to be water people, they had to have boats. They took some of their inspiration from the Indians, from the log canoes that the Indians had. And then some of them began building framed boats. And the uh, Chesapeake Bay uh, skiff was a simplified version that gradually grew into the uh, skipjack. Skipjack is an elegant boat in its uh, shape, the way it has evolved. There's not just a single form that a skipjack takes. It has a character about it and a specific purpose that is unique to this area. It's unique to the U.S. history. That's the last sailing fishing boat in America. Did you get to any kind of like a line of delineation where starting in 1680 skipjacks were a thing and they weren't in 1679? The, the story of the skipjacks is the story of the oyster population of the Chesapeake Bay. In the early 1800s, there were so many oysters that no one could ever fish them out. It was inconceivable. Mm. Consequently, people came from all up and down the East Coast. They put boats in the water. By the time the 1880s came around, there were thousands of individuals out on the Chesapeake Bay getting oysters off the bottom, shipping them all over the uh, east coast of the United States. Their boats took all kinds of different forms. And eventually, the most efficient one of all, and efficiency was part of the formula here, was a boat that could drag the bottom and pull up oysters the most efficient way. And that was the skipjack. It could be made by carpenters in their yards and all over the shores of the, of the bay in Virginia. 
east and west shores, people were building skipjacks. At one time, there were it was said that there were 700 skipjacks on the water at one time. Every little town that was on the water had a small fleet of, uh, of skipjacks. It was a very busy business. They, there were other boats out there tonging and raking and collecting them. There was, there was an armada of boats uh, involved in this industry. And so these oysters that were so many that they could never be depleted began to fade. Oh, yeah. And then disease also hit and lots of different... The disease is that there are two uh, parasitic diseases called DMX and Dermo that harm the oyster. By the age of three, they destroy it. And they're very vicious. They do not harm people, but they make the oysters not grow. And so that disease has been around since the early part of the 20th century, but it really hit hard in the starting around the 1940s and 50s, and it just increased. There's been a lot of conversation about pollution being another cause, but depletion had something to do with the fact that we were eating them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so the the fellow that built the Martha Lewis, Bronza Parks, yes. which I think is probably one of the coolest names I've ever heard. They, ca- they called him Bronzy, Uncle Bronzy. <laughs> right. Yeah. For me, one of the most interesting things was how he died. But, I mean, did you find the family? How was that? I found all of the families, um, at least in some uh, members of the families. Bronza was born in 1900, and he was um, born in a little town called Wingate, uh, the far southern peninsula of uh, Dorchester County. And there, people had lived by the water and by the land as, as they had since the 1600s. And he was a waterman initially. He had family tradition of boat building, but so was boat building part of the of the tradition of the entire area. There were islands that are now disappearing near Wingate that um, had whole communities of people dependent on the water, who some of whom uh, had a sizable boat building enterprises. And so beginning around 1920, had the idea to start building boats. He started building them in, in people's yards initially, and then he had his own boat building business, which became the biggest business on the southern end of Dorchester County for quite some time. He put out about 400 boats, it is said, and they were not skipjacks. They were pleasure boats. They were crabbing boats. They were fishing boats of all sizes uh, and some yachts. He was quite well known for doing exquisite work. So he built this industry, and Martha Lewis, that he did build, was just one of a great number of, of other vessels. How, how did he die? He was murdered. <laughs> da, da, da. Yeah. He actually was, yeah. He was the mainstay of the economy of that town. He had already built uh, Martha Lewis and three other uh, skipjacks, all in the same year, 1955. And uh, one of the DuPonts had another skipjack built as a yacht the following year. And he had built in 1940 his first skipjack. So I guess in all there were only about five that he ever built. He was commissioned by a fellow to build a small skipjack, a, a miniature one. And they got into arguments over the, the construction of it. The fellow was apparently running out of money. He kept asking for changes, upgrades. They had agreed on a price. In order to do the upgrades, it would have been loss of money to Bronza, and Bronza took out a lien on the boat, but the fellow agreed that he was going to pay. So Bronza took the lien off. The fellow came down to pay up and shot him. Wow. 
Yeah, and then he pleads insanity, spends a couple years in a mental institution, gets like a law degree, and then just goes and lives somewhere like north of Baltimore. Yes, he lived out his life. Yeah. The town that he had changed so much was never the same. People were all in one way or the other related or financially tied to Bronza Parks. And uh, with him gone, the town did never have another thriving industry like that. Today, it's a quiet little place. Yeah. With some oystering going on. But again, like the rest of the oyster industry, it has subsided. It has receded. I've recently been working on a story about a, about a guy who's doing aquaculture. And he seems very excited. This is in Eastern Shore, Virginia. He seems very excited about the premise of bringing the oysters back for aquaculture. But he seemed, uh, I think, I think he seemed to be very convinced that the bugs had as much to do with it as anything else. Well, the theories vary. I suppose it's a combination of things. If you if you take enough oysters, you do weaken the population and. It can't bounce back from sickness the way it could. We we have had uh, raw sewage spilled into the Chesapeake Bay uh, all the way up to the present time. So it's still not certain what the causes are, the combination of causes that has put such a stress on this sensitive organism. The uh, oyster is a filter. It cleans up our bay. It keeps the waters clean. And it's a kind of a marker, the uh, canary in the coal mine, Mm -hmm. to tell us when things are in trouble. And things are in trouble. Oh, yeah. So not only were you trying to preserve the boat, you were trying to preserve the history of it. And when those two things kind of merge together, it becomes the book. When did you realize this is going to be something bigger and that this story has to be told? I can't just kind of keep it up inside. The story has been told continuously since the time that that I became involved with it. When we first uh, brought it up the bay from Tillman Island up to Haverty Grace, we were on the boat for the first time. And it seemed like a charging bull. It was a strong, powerful creature. And it took on that kind of importance right away. It was not something that was um, casual in any way. It was physically important. And then as we uh, began to reconstruct it, we found so much about the structure of the boat, the thinking that had to go into it, that I had to write all of that down too. And a sizable portion of this book is the documentation of how a skipjack is made. It's the most detailed description of skipjack um, structure. There have been others that have written about it, Chappelle and Brewington, for example. This has every detail of skipjack construction laid out, photographed, and drawn. So that seemed to be important as well. It's a, it's a, a tradition. If it was not going to die, then one had to describe it. And I think that this book can be sort of a guidebook for anybody else interested in in, uh, this kind of boat building. I've also examined all the other boats on the Chesapeake Bay at the same time. Yeah, I was just getting right to uh, Appendix B. It's chock full of them. (laughs) And it's not just the story because Martha did not live in a vacuum. She was among others of her type, and the people that ran her were among other people that were family members or who were at least colleagues in the same interesting business. So what I've done is uh, photographed all of the other skipjacks in the Chesapeake Bay, got to see most of them. And then in interviewing individuals, they each had something to say about these other boats. They had lore. They had history about the about what happened to the other people's boats as well. It was all important to them. And so I've recorded that as well. It's a story about more than just one boat, and it's a story about a tradition, about an entire way of life. 
Sure, and families and the interconnectedness of the economy and the water and the land and the people. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff that gets kind of packed into into your book. And we even had to include a couple of uh, genealogy charts because a lot of the Lewis women married Park men. Right. And, you know, so there's all of these. And then the names of the islands. I don't want to say that it's, uh, you know, all these small little sectors, they just, it sort of coalesces into, into these in communities. Order, in order to make it understandable, I had to, to include a map of the Chesapeake Bay with the individual names of places on it so that one could refer back to it. Otherwise, it's confusing to somebody that doesn't hasn't lived here sure. um, the people's names are just a blur unless you put them in context and so uh, as somewhat of an amateur genealogist I, I took the um, the skipjack family as related to Martha Lewis and uh, just did a family tree and so you can understand when you read about somebody that he was so-and-so's uncle and that he also had a skipjack and um, that he married into another family that that was a waterman family who also had skipjacks and each of them was interconnected in this in this um, this nautical way yeah this Absolutely. is totally the war and peace of not but <laughs> you have to have all the names right and then all the nicknames. I tried to get them right, and yeah. and there's always that possibility that uh, you know that I've skipped something, mm-hmm. missed something, left somebody out, or said something that wasn't exactly right. I got my information from them, however, right. <laughs> from the yeah, other people. Absolutely. If I misinterpreted it, it's all my fault. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do want to ask. I I want to go back to the construction only because it fascinates me. Um, what I have in my head from what you've already said is I get the impression that if someone was a boat, a professional boat designer, they never would have designed a skipjack. It was if you were a professional oyster getter that you designed a skipjack. I think that's right. The The boat is um, is special for the dredging. And this is not just the plucking off, but the, the powerful raking of uh, – of uh, oysters off off of a rocky or sandy or muddy bottom. It took a lot of power to do that. Uh, And in the old days, uh, before the... there was any power allowed on these boats. It all had to be wind power that that pulled these these uh, dredges, these rakes through the water. So the sides of the boat had to be very low so that you could pull the oysters uh, over the side. Mm. The mast had to be tall. The sails had to be huge. The boom had to be huge just for the, the sheer power that it took. And then there was there was the technique of making these things not just monsters, but flexible, um, movable, um, useful machines. And that was a process that evolved. It, and, and people experimented with it, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book. They experimented with it, made mistakes, uh, found things that worked better. And it, if you could have a, a vessel that would turn quickly, uh, smartly in the wind, um, that was powerful, uh, you had what you needed to, to do this particular task. And it sounds to me, as we were kind of going through the book, that so within the maritime culture, there are there's jargon, there's lingo, there's slang terms. But it all, almost seems like with skipjacks, 
it was even more so uh, that they just developed almost an entire language just for the skipjacks, its parts, how it moved, and all that sort of thing as well. A lot of the terms that are used in uh, in the case of skipjacks are familiar to boat builders and to people that have been been around the water and around boats for a long time. And yet there are some uh, some words uh, that are jargon-like. There are some pronunciations that are different um, usages of words um, that are unique to the area. I've put in, a, in the book a, a glossary of all the terms, uh, everything relating to this particular boat, so that if a person reads a word that just makes no sense, can flip to the back, have a, have a quick definition, and move on. Yeah. And so that makes it uh, a clockwork orange meets war and peace. <laughs> <laughs> so you... Um, when did you go from I want to write this to I want to get it published? Well, if one were to write it, it would have to be for a reason. I, I think because I've, I really enjoy preservation of special things, I don't think we as humans should should create wonderful things and then make them disappear, um, that, that there has to be some um, recording and – I did that, but the the need for it to be a book probably happened three or four years ago. Mm. It was I was getting older. This was going to reside in my filing cabinet <laughs> unless I unless I did something about it. And so I spent quite a long time piecing together the individual conversations. And I and I these recordings are all in the and I've actually written in the jargon in the in the voice of the the people that that spoke to me, the owners, um, the family members of people that actually worked this boat. Um, and it's been this past three or so years that I have intensively worked on it to um, to put it to rights. Now, when you say that you put it, um, you put it together, you had to do some editing. You couldn't just you couldn't just put out your notes. So, how did you choose what stayed and what went? What was what was the process of turning it from a bunch of notes into a narrative? The um, the notes were um, on just hundreds and hundreds of bits of, of bits of paper right. uh, and they were sometimes duplicated they were sometimes useless they were sometimes um, so important that I had to go back and look up facts and uh, about the um, uh, the details um, it it was a process uh, that I suppose I've read this book after I finished it uh, 20 times yeah working through the the um, the way I really meant it to be. Mm. It's not just grammatical changes. It's it's about the the um, the way it is shaped, the way the way it flows from one one idea to another. Uh, to try to make it um, presentable to an audience, and I don't know who that audience is really. I I only imagine that right. the. Um, the the people that I have known that have enjoyed these boats, I understand fairly well. But I don't know who else out there is interested in this American tradition. Mm. I think we're, we, we go through different phases of nostalgia. I don't know which phase we're in right now. But looking back to something that was special um, happens th- throughout all of time. But um, I think in looking back at our – Maritime, a waterman tradition of this Chesapeake Bay, we're looking back on something that was so important to the to 
to the um, development of our early country that um, we, we shouldn't forget it. Now, um, well, they are they are the skipjack races, and people come from all over to go to that. So skipjacks are very important, I believe, for Eastern Shore people. They, they are the... Um, they are the state boat of Maryland, mm-hmm. which means that, that uh, people have, have uh, valued them. The races have gone on since the early part of the uh, 20th century. Um, the, the, the captains, it was said they used to have a race just before the uh, oyster season started to see who could get their – or just after it started, see who could get their oysters to market the quickest. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was the origin. Or maybe it was just competition uh, that made them get together once a year, twice a year, Sometimes as much as three over time. World War II interrupted the, the races, but then they came back. They've been held in various different venues, um, um, mainly, uh, well, on, on really on both shores. And uh, each year in September or October, there have been races now for, for many dozens of years. People get together from all over, not just boating people, but because it's quite a spectacle to see these, these huge um, – Sails, some of them all patched and torn, um, sailing past fresh white sails, mm-hmm. um, uh, aiming at a um, at a mark uh, far out in the in the bay, where where they're they're racing to to out sail um, each other. It's beautiful. I mean, it's just it's, it's iconic and beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you had a no. That's okay. You're welcome. To. No. So. Um, <laughs> One of the things that when we were working on this project, one of the things that was really important for you as, as we were kind of going through it was making sure that this felt right in, in all sorts of ways. That, you know, like Tony was saying, it went from notes to becoming a narrative. And I know that the many conversations you and I had, you know, you would go back just to a sentence and you're like, that's not how I intended it. I think I've said this. And, and I know that there were moments in which through the narrative that you did agonize over you wanted to be very clear. You wanted to have the right intention as you were delivering this material. I'm fairly certain that I am a perfectionist, not a perfect person. I wanted it to be as right as possible. That was just a matter of, of duty, I guess. Sure. And it's the best that I could do. At a certain point, I could not improve it any more than I had. Right. And uh, then we brought it to you to publish. Yeah. And then I and then it fell into my hands. And, you know, it was one of those moments where I have all of this raw material you know i had the narrative i had these you know incredible photographs and i had uh, drawings of the skipjacks you know almost architectural in, in nature and then you know the appendix and we had a family tree and there was so there was all this stuff you know that i got to really kind of dig my hands into and you know there was a murder mystery not a mystery but there was like a murder in the middle of it and so there were you know there were women who were you know we always think of like water men but there were women who were just as involved in the families and making sure that these boats continued on and kind of stayed not you know they they were you know they were in the in the middle of it as well so the, know, the women the women were pretty much of the time at home but they were they were providing the sustenance they were they were sending the meals out to the to the uh, the watermen who stay, right. early on would stay out for a week um, they um, were uh, sometimes actually working on the boat as crew um, they were always the the, the backdrop um, 
So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so then we got to put it all together. And, uh, you know, then we kind of went back and forth on trying to get the cover right and trying to get all the, you know, different pieces of the, the puzzle, kind of pulling them together and getting them all right. And we just uh, dropped the book to Amazon, I think, uh, at the end of last week or the yeah. beginning of this week. Yeah. Uh, it just went available on Amazon. So we're... Uh, I see this as it's a documentation. You know, I call it a memoir. But it is, in a way, almost an, an encyclopedia. It really of, is, of, of, uh, of this particular type of vessel in its time. Do you know what's not available on Amazon? Your limericks. Nope. You have to ask me for them. Absolutely. So if you like the podcast and you like what you're hearing, you can go to www.sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com. There's a contact us button. You can click on that. Give us your name, your email. If you pick a word, uh, Tony will make it into a limerick. I will turn it into a haiku. We will put a stamp on it and we'll send it to you in the mail. Just like it's 1983. Yeah, just just like 1993, you know. <laughs> we'll just keep in time there. All right, Stephanie. Well, this is a part of the show where you thank the guest. Well, Rainy, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. I enjoyed it very much. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.